Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Trees can help us keep watch on the stars and the quality of our air. Now trees are incredibly useful things. They give us oxygen, amongst other things, as well as food and shelter. But trees can also tell us about the formations of cataclysmic events across the universe, like supernova. And they can tell us how good or bad our air is, with the help of some magnets. This week we find out about some special ways we get some help from trees. Now one of the most incredibly powerful and energetic things that you can possibly imagine that physicists have dreamed of is a supernova. And supernova created by the explosions of dying stars are responsible for producing a wide variety of the heavier elements present in our universe. They also produce huge amounts of energy, radiation, and spread all of these elements across the universe. In fact, we owe the iron in our bodies to supernova, ejecting the former star matter to an accretion disk which would later go on to form our solar system and the Earth. So supernova are incredibly important, but they're also tricky to study. Maybe because you've got to be with the observatory at the right time, pointing at the right bit of space. Now, one way of looking at supernova, put together by University of Colorado Boulder geoscientist Robert Brackenridge, turns this all stellar and physics-based research into something much more down to Earth. Now, not in the Earth specifically, just above it and using these tools to help study supernova in days gone past. And you have to think about it as a pretty strange story, because how else would you manage to study the science of supernova, cosmic events happening on the other side of the universe with tremendous power and energy, by staring at some trees? But that's exactly what Robert Brackenridge did, using the rings of trees to help understand and map supernova from days gone past. Now Brackenridge published this in the International Journal of Astrobiology. Now the thing is, we see supernova all the time. Now astronomers are able to take a glimpse of supernova pretty frequently, or if they're lucky they can find a a patch of the sky and identify it and then all of a sudden one small pale little dot in a galaxy full of stars may become brighter than the rest of the galaxy itself. That is the telltale sign of a supernova. And they can be easy to spot today using fantastic machines combined with data analysis. It makes it much easier to spot supernova. In the past, we've had to rely on pretty spectacular, large and relatively close supernova, which created long-lasting visible differences in the night sky. We have records of this from historical archives, from people talking about all of a sudden a new star appearing in the sky that shone very, very brightly. And we know that these, of course, were supernovas. Now, of course, here we're talking about supernova that happened very, very far away. But what happened if one was much closer to home? Well, since a supernova can release as much energy as the sun produces during its entire lifetime, that would be obviously problematic. If it happened relatively nearby in a cosmic sense, it could wipe pretty much the Earth clean. But even if it was much further away, it would still unleash huge amounts of radiation that could do a lot of damage, even to our ozone layer. So Brackenridge had the idea, could we go back through the historic record found in trees to find these fingerprints of cosmic explosions? 
because they would have released large amounts of radiation. And a spike or an uptick in the radiation preserved in these tree rings could give us a hint about some supernova that have happened in the past. And based on this, he's found four key disruptions that happened, if you look at the record in the tree rings, over the last 40,000 years. And these may have come being tied back to supernova. I say may because, of course, this is a single study on an area with obviously pretty large implications. Because what he's trying to do is tie potentially some pretty drastic shifts in climates that have occurred in the past of Earth's history and trying to tie it back to supernova. So you've got to have some good data to back it up. So take everything here with a bit of a grain of salt. But as a hypothesis that warrants further investigation, it's certainly very interesting. Now his research hinges around a particular isotope of carbon, carbon-14, radiocarbon. Now we'll know that radiocarbon occurs in tiny amounts on Earth. And typically radiocarbon is actually formed when cosmic rays from space bombard our atmosphere. And you can actually see we get a steady amount year after year. Now the trees actually pick up carbon dioxide and some of the carbon dioxide that a tree sequesters inside itself in its rings, in its trunk, will actually be radiocarbon. Not a lot, we're not talking huge amounts of course, and the, this background radiation gets absorbed into the tree. Now sometimes if you look through a tree's radiocarbon amounts, you can see Instead of a gradual, linear, steady increase, you get huge spikes. Now, science have discovered a handful of cases like this, where the concentration of the isotope inside tree rings all of a sudden spikes with no apparent reason, or at least any earthly reason that we could point back to it. No large volcanic eruption or no other large geological shift that would have caused this. Now, scientists have been thinking that perhaps... These could have been due to solar flares or large coronal mass ejections from the sun. Now that's certainly possible. They would cause more high energy particles to bombard our atmosphere. Now, it could really then either be a solar flare or maybe a supernova that could have been causing these spikes in the amount of radiocarbon that gets absorbed into the tree rings. The problem is proving this hypothesis is pretty tricky. We would need a relatively powerful supernova that's sort of close by, that doesn't hurt us, but enables us to go compare quickly to the tree record and see if it actually ends up fossilized inside the tree rigs. Now, we have to be very lucky to do that, but we can sort of do a similar thing. That's what Brackenridge did. It turned to a list of supernovas that occurred relatively close to Earth over the last 40,000 years. Now, how scientists identify these is you look at this nebula left behind by these supernovas. And then you can estimate the ages based on the nebula and the potentially stars that are forming in them and work back when that may have actually had a supernova. And there's around eight of these closer supernovas that if you look at that time scale and try and match it back to the geological record in these tree rings, well, you can see eight that have a relatively close match. Four actually seem very, very promising. A couple of stars as an example. Now, there used to be a star in the Vela constellation. It's about 815 light years from Earth and went supernova, we think, around 13,000 years ago. Shortly after that event, or that age, radiocarbon levels found in tree rings and other places jumped up nearly 3%. That's a huge spike in radiocarbon amounts. That is much more than the steady ticking of background radiation. Now, that's just one example. 
And the reason why it's tricky is that Vila, trying to date it by estimating off the nebula is incredibly nebulous as a concept. The error range, the margin of error, might be plus minus 15,000 years. So trying to tie it back to the jump, the specific time point jump in radiation that we see in the Earth's record isn't as easy as you think. A scale of plus minus 1,500 years is a big difference and doesn't really neatly line up necessarily. Now, really, as he said, what he needs is another supernova to really prove this hypothesis. Now, there's two real candidates that people have been keeping a keen eye on. One of those is Betelgeuse, the giant red star in the constellation Orion. Now, it's 640 or so light years from Earth, so much closer than Vela. So if it did go, we would have a chance of picking it up in the radiation levels. The problem is, scientists and astronomers have been looking at Betelgeuse for a while now, thinking, oh, maybe this red giant star in Orion is right on the verge of collapsing. There were some weird observances recently with its fading or changing brightness, which scientists weren't sure whether or not it would be just the precursor to a supernova or maybe just some unusual stellar weather around that system or maybe some obstruction. The jury's still out on that, but it seems pretty clear it wasn't at least immediately about to explode. So Betelgeuse remains probably the next best bet we have at a close supernova to use to test this hypothesis. But it's a pretty interesting idea. The fact that we could study supernova in the past by studying tree rings and using them to piece together with what we have from other sources, whether that be cultural or historic sources, along with the tree record, we actually understand what happened in the universe around us in years gone past. An interesting idea put forward by Brackenridge in the International Journal of Astrobiology with some interesting data. Of course, proof will be in the pudding, or rather the tree rings. Aside from producing oxygen for us to breathe, which is incredibly important, they also sequester carbon. But trees can also be used as an air quality monitoring system, and not in the way that you might think. Every tree, even an evergreen, can be turned into an air quality monitoring device. What researchers from the University of Utah have been studying, and published in the journal GeoHealth. Researchers involved in this paper include Grant Rare Downing, Brendan Quirk, Courtney Wagner, and Peter Lippert. One of the things that you often do with an air quality monitoring system is basically have a little disc, piece of paper, shoot a laser at it, and you count the amount of particles that are hitting it. And you use this to basically measure and analyze the quality of air. Air quality monitors often have an only specified number of hours or counts that they can do before they get filled, which makes sense because they're effectively just filling up and you're monitoring the change over time. So that's where measures like parts per million and things like that come in. Now researchers from the University of Utah, including doctoral student Grant Rare Downing, was looking for a way to make a, a pretty cheap and effective air quality monitoring device that would literally grow on trees. And what they were turning to was actually even 
evergreen trees, or trees of any type scattered around their campus in the University of Utah. Because as long as they had a way to use the leaves of the trees and see if they could quickly separate out particles from them, well, they had a way to turn pretty much any tree around you into an air quality monitoring device with a low-cost process that could give detailed and high-resolution year-round pictures of air quality. And this is interesting because one of the issues with air quality monitoring devices is that you've got to buy a sensor, and then you've got to place it at key locations that you want to monitor the air quality. And you've got to leave it there until it runs out and then replace it with another one. But if you could use the leaves of a tree, well, you already have trees scattered all over the place, and then you, all you would need to do is collect samples from those trees, take them back to the lab, and test them. And that would give you a wide range of data points for year-round, much more cost-effectively and much cheaper. Now, Grant Rhea Downing and Courtney Wagner are both graduate students, and one of the classes they took from Professor Lippert was called the magnetic earth. And in that class, they discussed a couple of cases where UK researchers are using magnetism of deciduous leaves to try and assess air quality. Now, they were obviously pretty taken aback by that, but they wanted to see if they could take it one step further by applying it not just to deciduous leaves like done in the prior research, but see if they could make it apply to all leaves. And it stems from using magnetism and particulate matter. So Grant, took some pine needles from a nearby tree outside the lab and put them into a magnetometer to try and study the magnetism of pine needles and see if they could infer back to it the actual particulate matter. Now, of course, the tying of magnetism to pine needles and the tying of magnetism to deciduous trees has been investigated in the past, but they were really trying to push this further and look at a wider range of trees. So they took four Austrian pine trees scattered around the University of Utah campus now, some of these are actually backed onto a major road, which is pretty helpful because you can actually look at the particular matter. And they collected pine needles during the summer, a relatively good air quality time, and again during winter, which is in Utah, the time of the worst air quality. They even managed to get it samples of air quality in a time of particularly bad fog that settled all over it, a thick yellowish fog and with frost on the pine needles. They managed to get samples in this time because they have a particular weather inversion event where you end up with a strange mixture of air quality and weather event, which gives you something very, very interesting to study. So they saw through this study that the magnetism of the needles, these pine needles, was three times higher in December than in the summer, the period of good air quality. What was driving the magnetism is, of course, metals like iron in the dust, they also saw other things like titanium, vanadium, and zirconium. These things are normally associated with brakes of trucks or cars. And they were finding those and their samples were actually dropping off pretty steadily, as did the magnetism of these leaves from near the roadside. So the further away the tree was from the roadside, you saw a rapid decrease in the magnetism and the amount of these polluted particles on the leaves. A good measure of air quality. And this raises the next question. If pine needles are so good at being air quality monitoring devices, is there a way to actually make air quality monitoring devices more like pine needles? And that's where other researchers like Gannett Heller and chemical engineer Kerry Kelly come in. They're trying to develop a new passive kind of air quality monitor, which is in effect an artificial pine branch with needles all able to catch different kinds of particulates. You can put these alongside natural needles and you have effectively an experimental platform that you can automatically analyze and use quickly without having to rely on getting a tree damaged or watering the tree as well. 
or damaging the tree as part of the measuring process and collecting the pine needles. Another important part about having the synthetic needles or the synthetic monitoring device is that you can try and rule out the impact of weather events like a large rain downstorm, for example, damaging and washing off all the particulate matter you've collected over the last month. Now this is some interesting ideas about applying what is a readily available device, a tree leaf, and turning it into a way to something that a community can use to monitor the health of their air over time, quickly and efficiently, without relying on expensive devices. Some great research from the University of Utah, published in the journal GeoHealth. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From using magnets and tree leaves to help study the quality of the air, and by using the rings of trees and radioactive carbon to help detect supernova in the past. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.